Welcome to Heart Starts Pounding, a podcast of horrors, hauntings, and mysteries. I'm your host, Kaylin Moore. So I was thinking about this the other day. I realize I say that at the beginning of every episode. This is a podcast of horrors, hauntings, and mysteries. Each episode tends to fall into one of those categories, and that's by design. My goal was to kind of make it so each week you wouldn't know what you were getting. I think it keeps the content fresh, and for me, it also keeps the research interesting. But today, I want to try something with you guys. I told you last year that I saw a lot of audience growth in India, and so I started poking around for stories, listening to what my audience over there suggested, as well as talking to friends who grew up there. And I realized that there's so much to talk about. India has such a wild history full of triumph and horror, as well as a folklore and storytelling tradition that expertly weaves in parts of that history. At the end of the day, there were just too many different things that I wanted to include. So in today's episode, I'm going to do one of each, a horror, a haunting, and a mystery all from India, to kind of give you a taste of the myths, legends, and true crime that comes from there. And a quick note for today's episode, please give me a little grace on the pronunciations. I looked up everything to get as close as I can, but at the end of the day, I did not grow up speaking Hindi or Marathi, and some sounds my mouth simply cannot make, but I promise, I tried. And first, some quick housekeeping. If you're listening to the ad-supported version of the show, thank you so much. Our advertisers make this show possible. And if you're listening on Patreon ad-free, well, you're making this possible as well. So thank you. And on that note, we're doing a revamp of our Patreon starting in February. More details on that next week, but we'll be archiving the current $3 tier, our only tier at the moment, and introducing a couple of new tiers. So if you want to get in at $3, make sure you do it before the end of the month. And don't worry, existing patron supporters, you'll be able to continue at $3. Now, we're going to take a really short break, and when we get back, we're going to jump into our first category, a horror. One that takes place on the outskirts of the city of Bengaluru far away from the pervasive symphony of traffic and under the cover of night. It's about women who disappear and are found dead inside of temples and the shocking culprit after the break. Our story starts in early December of 2006 on the outskirts of Bengaluru, India's largest southern city. It's sometimes called Bangalore, but for this episode, I'll be referring to it as Bengaluru. There, ornate temples painted head to toe in pinkish white sit against a backdrop of lush trees and rolling mountains. It's a beautiful contrast. In one specific temple, Sri Yogi Narayana, the day is just getting started when a scream rings out from the dormitory area of the temple. Others run over to find out what the commotion is all about, not expecting what they see. 
The body of a young woman was sprawled out on the floor. Police are called to the scene immediately, but aren't really able to piece together what may have happened. There was no sign of trauma or foul play to the woman's body, no sign of struggle or forced entry into the dorm. It appeared as if she just dropped dead inside of the temple. But she was so young, early 20s maybe. How could that have happened? To make matters worse, they weren't able to identify the woman. She had no identification on her, no one claimed her body, and there wasn't anyone reported missing in the area who matched her description. They end up changing her clothes, bagging the ones she wore when she died as evidence, and burying the body. Three weeks later, a young woman named Mani calls the police. She's worried about her sister, Renuka. She hasn't heard from her in a few weeks, and that wasn't typical. All of Mani's attempts to get in touch with her sister go unanswered. And so, on December 29th, she calls the police to report Renuka missing. The police ask Mani some questions. What was Renuka doing in the weeks leading up to her disappearance? Well, Mani tells them, she had recently been hanging out with a new friend, an older woman. Mani had been working as domestic help at a family's house where she befriended the cook, a woman who went by the name Malika. She had started hanging out socially with Malika and invited Renuka along a few times, who became fast friends with the woman and quickly got vulnerable with her. Renuka had been struggling to conceive a child, but Malika offered some help. She told her that she could perform a ritual for her at a temple outside of Bengaluru that would ensure Renuka would give birth to a son. That was close to the last time Mani ever saw her sister. And though the police were told this, told that one of the last places Renuka was known to have gone was a temple on the outskirts of the city No one put it together that the unnamed woman found a few weeks prior might be Renuka. And for a year, Mani was left without any answer as to what happened to her sister. Birthdays passed, holidays, all without word from Renuka. What Mani didn't know was this was becoming a concerning pattern in the area women being found dead at different temples on the outskirts of the city, all without signs of struggle, foul play, or forced entry. Typically, they were found by the first people into the temple in the mornings, meaning they most likely died in the dead of night when no one else was there. As the bodies were being found, police had almost no leads as to what was happening, They initially assumed that they were all suicides, though the cause of death was still unknown. But something strange was happening to the bodies. Police were holding onto the bodies of some of the women for testing and identification, and they noticed that they all decomposed at a rate much slower than usual. That was the first thing that tipped him off that something wasn't right. Sure, that can sometimes happen naturally, but that can also happen when there's a toxic substance in the blood of the deceased. 
Another clue that something was not right came from the families of the women that were found. They noticed that the jewelry their loved one typically wore was missing. Every single body was reported to have gold jewelry taken from it. The next big clue came when they discovered the body of a 60-year-old woman named Yashodama. In late 2007, a year after Renuka went missing, she was found at a different temple, Sri Siraganga Mutt, and the police noticed that the SIM card in her phone had been swapped out. They were able to trace her correct SIM card to a phone that was being used by a cab driver in the city. So they started listening in on his calls, trying to figure out how he was tied to the woman. Remember, they still don't think there's any foul play necessarily. One day though, he gets a call from a woman and she tells him to meet her at a bus stop the next morning at 7 a.m. So he does, with the police unknowingly right behind him. When they arrive, there's a middle-aged woman coming from behind the bus stop with a large bag. She huddles close to the cab driver and opens the bag so he can poke around. At this point, the police think they have enough to approach the two and see what's going on. And when they do, they see that the woman's bag is full of jewelry that had been stripped off of the dead women. But that wasn't the only thing the mysterious woman had on her. Inside of small, clear vials in the bag was cyanide. A year after her sister's disappearance, Mani is watching the news when a report comes up that a woman has been arrested for the poisoning deaths of multiple women. When the picture of the woman at the bus stop pops up, Mani recognizes it. It's Malika, the woman who promised her sister a son. Her picture is next to the pictures of six other women, all that she had been accused of killing. Except the news wasn't calling her Malika. They were referring to her as Kadi Kampama, India's first female serial killer. Kadi Kampama was born on the outskirts of Bengaluru in the 1960s. She didn't attend school much and married a tailor living in the city in her early adulthood. From what I've read, it seems like from a young age, Kampama was always scheming up ways to make quick cash. In her 20s, she started a chit fund, which is a way for community members to pool money together to loan to one another. It may sound a little sketchy to some listeners, but it's semi-common around the world. And a study done in 2018 found that between 5 and 10% of households in Southern India participated in chit funds. The way a chit fund works is an organizer brings together a group of people who each put in a monthly fee to a big fund. So say you get 40 people together and they each put a thousand rupees into the fund. The fund is now worth 40,000 rupees. Each month, someone is selected to win most of the pot. Sometimes it's through an auction and sometimes they're just randomly selected. But that person will win, say, 30,000 of the rupees and the remaining 10,000 will be split amongst the rest of the group and a fee will be paid to the organizer. The system goes on for as many months as there are members. 
It's not a perfect financial model by any means. There are tons of risks. Someone could just bail after winning the pot and no longer pay into the fund. And there's tons of scam ones where an organizer will just collect the money for a fund and take off. But when it works and people are honest, it can be a good way to get a low interest loan from friends and family. But I will say the person who has the highest chance of actually making money in this scenario is the organizer, who was Kempema. Only she must have done a horrible job at organizing this chit fund because she nearly lost all of the money that she had put into the fund. And when her husband found out in 1998 because bill collectors were nearly knocking down his door, he left her. With nowhere to live and now no income, Kempema went into the line of domestic help. But the scheming did not stop. At this time, she was robbing the homes she cleaned. At one point, Kempema had worked in a jewelry store and noticed that gold was dissolved in cyanide. She figured if it was strong enough to do that, surely it would kill someone when ingested. Her connections at this store supplied her with cyanide during her killing sprees. And it wasn't long before she graduated from robbing homes to something more sinister. A year later, she started lurking inside of temples on the outskirts of Bengaluru, surrounded by hills and lush forests, where the swelling sounds of traffic were a little duller. She'd go to beautiful, ancient temples with tall gold roofs and men in bright orange robes who led prayer. There, she would look for vulnerable women, posing as a concerned member and offering services. That's where she met Mumta Rajan, a wealthy 30-year-old woman and her first victim. In 1999, Kempema asked Mumta to meet her under the cover of darkness. She knew that the young woman was struggling in her personal life, and she promised that she could do a ritual that would bring her a better future. While the two were alone in the temple, Kempema asked her to drink some of her holy water. Mumta didn't know it then, but the holy water was laced with a lethal amount of cyanide. The poison worked immediately. Killing the 30-year-old in just a few minutes, Kempema took the jewels off of her body and disappeared into the night. And though she'd go on to take more lives, she was almost stopped after the first one. In 2000, Kempema was arrested for stealing valuables from a home she was performing a religious ritual in. There's not much information on this event, but this could have been part of the scam she was running to rob wealthy women she met at temples. She was caught trying to steal jewels from the woman who lived in the house. Ultimately though, she only spent six months in jail. This was definitely not enough to teach her a lesson. And it seems like after being incarcerated, she doubled down on her deadly schemes. In 2007, it's believed she killed five women within three months, from October to December. The first woman she targeted during the spree was a 52-year-old woman named Elizabeth. 
Kempema had noticed that Elizabeth had a granddaughter that went missing. She approached Elizabeth with the same promise she had made Mumta, that she could perform rituals and prayers that would aid in the search for Elizabeth's granddaughter. All Elizabeth had to do was wear her most valuable clothing and jewelry to the ceremony. The next victim was the 60-year-old woman named Yashodama, the one who had her SIM card swapped. She was suffering from asthma and was promised relief by Kampama. She was lured to a temple after hours when no one else was around to witness the meeting. And this occurred at a different temple than the others, as Kempoma was careful to not visit the same temple too many times. She was also changing her name each time she searched for a victim. This is probably how she was able to avoid police detection for so long. After Yashodama, Kempoma went after a 60-year-old woman named Muniyama at a different temple on the outskirts of the city. She wanted to be a singer of devotional songs and Kempama promised her she could achieve her dreams if she just drank some of her holy water. Then there was Palama, a 60-year-old temple priest. Kempama had promised to sponsor an arch for her temple, but when the two met, she tricked her into drinking the cyanide as well. The last woman Kempama killed during the spree was a 30-year-old woman named Nagaveni who was having trouble conceiving a child. Kempama had approached her at a temple and listened to her problems and worries to quickly build trust. She told her she would perform a ritual at a temple for her one night. All Nagaveni had to do was bring her best jewelry. There, Kempama did what she had done so many times before, presented the young woman with holy water to drink watched as she died a slow and agonizing death and then stole the jewels right off her body. Mani watched as the TV replayed these crimes in horror as the memory of her sister racked her brain. Though Kempema had confessed to the murder of these women, she hadn't confessed to the killing of Ranuka, which confused Mani. She called the police again after learning of Malika, well, Kempama's crimes, and told them the situation, that she had befriended the murderer before she had promised her sister a baby boy. The police had preserved the clothing of the body they found in the temple a year earlier, and Mani confirmed that, yes, those were her sister's clothes. Renika had been killed in a temple, just like the others. And Mani wasn't the only person coming forward to say that Kampama knew their missing loved one. At least three other people came forward to suggest that Kampama was responsible for more deaths. In the end, Kampama was charged with 13 counts of murder, but only convicted of six. She was given two death sentences for the murder of Muniyama and Nagaveni, though they were eventually lessened to life sentences. She's currently serving her life sentences in Parapana Agrahara Central Prison. Kempama promised young, vulnerable women a better life, but instead, she killed them in cold blood to steal a little bit of jewelry. She's known as India's first female serial killer, though it's unclear if she killed for the thrill or just to make some quick cash. 
and her prison sentence will never repay the families of those she killed of what they lost. We're gonna take a quick break. And when we get back, I wanna dive into our next category and walk you through one of India's most terrifying hauntings. For our next story, we're heading up to the north of India, past Delhi, to outside of the city of Dehradun. Here, folklore and myths surround the nature of the area. Rivers are believed to have mystical healing properties, and there are caves where it's said Indian robbers hid out from British colonists. The gently flowing shallow river at the base of the cave conceals the footprints of those trying to get away. If you took the winding roads up the hills until you were high enough to get a view of the Himalayas, you'd find yourself in Masuri. And there, you might hear locals talking about something paranormal that resides in the woods. This tale of these woods comes from Jay Alani, a paranormal investigator in India. It's from his book, Haunted, Real Life Encounters with Ghosts and Spirits. Back in 2015, Jay received a call from a real estate broker. At the time, he was making YouTube videos about hauntings in India, so he was used to being reached out to by people who thought they were experiencing something paranormal. But he never experienced anything like this. The man said that his firm owned a beautiful plot of land on the outskirts of Masuri. It had everything a real estate developer would want a gorgeous view of the Himalayas, an amazing destination to develop vacation homes, and a low asking price. But, the broker explained, they couldn't sell it. No matter how low they set the price, once buyers heard where the land was, they would immediately end the phone call. They all say there's something wrong with that piece of land, he explained, that it has some sort of negative energy. The man asked Jay to investigate and prove once and for all that the area was safe. So together, they went to Masuri. And when they arrived, they saw an old abandoned mine, the Lambi Dehar mine. Only pieces of the old mine and buildings remained. Decrepit concrete staircases that went off to where a second floor once stood crumbling walls that once held a bustling and lucrative limestone quarry. It was spooky looking. No wonder locals thought it had negative energy. But the remains could be easily cleared. First, Jay explained, they needed to find a trusted local who could explain to them why people were so afraid of the land. They came upon a lone chai tea and biscuit shop on a path in the woods owned by an elderly man, and they asked him if there was a story about the land they were on. They're thinking that he'll just say that the mine is creepy and dangerous. But in a quivering voice, he tells them to come in, closing the door behind them. He pours them both a mug of chai tea and asks, have you heard about the salt witch of the mines? Jay and the broker's eyes went wide and they shot each other a look. This is the story that the man told them. 
The story begins almost 200 years ago, back in 1827, when India was still under British rule. Masuri was an unknown small town back then, but that didn't stop a British officer from falling in love with the place. The view of the Himalayas was unlike anything he had ever seen. He'd spend his days walking through the woods, exploring the land that had been uncharted by the British. One day, he came upon a small hut at the top of one hill, where a lone woman lived. What he didn't know was that locals tended to stay away from this woman. She was, let's say, eccentric. But the officer still went over to her home, where he found her cooking over a large pot and singing to herself. He was welcomed in and offered tea, and he asked her why she lived all by herself. Where was her family? I'm a nomad, she told him in an uncommon dialect of Hindi. This is how my people have always lived. He drank his tea quickly and headed back towards his home. When he arrived, he noticed that there was a strange white powdery substance all over his shoes that he tracked into his house. The man smiled wide when he realized what it was. Limestone, and a high quality limestone at that. See, in that particular area of India, the mineral was so prevalent that you could pick up limestone rocks off the forest floor. This would make him rich. The English used tons of limestone to make cement. Plus, it's a resource that's found close to the Earth's surface instead of deep underground. And so the officer knew that he'd have easy access to an almost unlimited supply. He immediately ordered mines to be built all across the area for the British. In doing so, however, he displaced the woman in the woods. She was never seen again. Soon, the Lambi Dehar mines, the mines that the broker and Jay passed on their way in, were up and running, owned by the British, but mostly employing the local Indian population. The mines operated pretty consistently until the 1990s. That's when tragedy struck. One day in 1996, a woman and her young son showed up to the gates of the mines to deliver lunch to her husband. It was common for wives to bring lunch to their husbands during breaks from carrying limestone up the quarry. But the woman left her son at the gate and slipped into the mines. A gatekeeper remembered seeing the boy playing at the gate alone, but when he turned around and looked back, the boy was gone. He radioed for someone to find the woman, but she was nowhere to be found either. Later that evening, when the mines were full, a terrible crashing sound echoed throughout the mountainous region. The entryway to the mines had collapsed trapping all of the workers inside. A green, noxious gas filled the sealed underground area, making the men's skin peel off down to the bone. Between 20 and 50,000 workers were killed. People in town say that their screams can still be heard at night. The man in the chai shop told the two men, The woman was a Chudel, a solitary witch. 
one that lives alone and does not like company. She becomes vengeful when disturbed and can change shape, form, and age. The man in the shop believed that she was finally getting her revenge from the British, shutting down their mind for good, even at the expense of her own people. This is actually a legend that's been around for some time, and there's been different versions of it. Some say that due to horrible working conditions at the mines, workers started dying. Their lungs were irritated by the limestone particles in the air, and they'd start coughing up blood. The number of deaths stays the same, though. Between 20 and 50,000 workers died in this version. It is hard to find reports on this, as it seems these catastrophic events were not documented in papers at the time. One report does say, however, that there was a furnace that exploded at the top of the mine in 1990, killing about 50 workers. Perhaps the legend has grown and been embellished over time, but it doesn't change the fact that many people died here in an accident and the locals swear that echoes of the event can still be heard in the area. And they all agree that it was the doing of the witch. One sighting in the area that people have not been able to explain is a strange blue glow that emanates from inside of the tunnels. Some have tried to say that the glow is from radium, but scientists have argued against this. They say there's nothing radioactive in the mines so radium couldn't be the culprit. Others have tried to explain away the strange noises and sights at the mine as well. Some say that the mine leaks methane gas, which causes visitors to hallucinate. But again, scientists have argued against this. That night, Jay and the broker took ghost hunting equipment into the mines and decided that, yes, there was paranormal activity happening in the area. Though it was unclear exactly what happened there, the energy was definitely still lingering. And the broker looked terrified. Maybe because he knew there was something paranormal there. Or maybe because he knew he would never be able to sell the land. No matter how many people try to explain it away, nothing ever sticks and residents swear the terror of the land's history can still be heard today, booming throughout the hills until the witch gets her land back. Our last story takes us south again. 333 miles or 530 kilometers southeast of Delhi, in the eastern Indian city of Mirzapur, which is in the state of Uttar Pradesh. Uttar Pradesh is the most populated state in India, and it's where you can find the Taj Mahal. Mirzapur is in the southernmost part of Uttar Pradesh and is home to thick jungles and majestic waterfalls. This is where one of the strangest unsolved mysteries I've read about occurred. In August of 2002, the BBC reported that 10,000 residents of Mirzapur gathered outside of a police precinct in a growing mob. As their shouts of anger grow, gunshots ring out. And a man falls to the ground, 
sending the crowd around him running. If you were to ask anyone in the mob, this was yet another casualty of the strange phenomena attacking their community. The reason they were at the police station in the first place. They had been complaining to police for months that someone or something was attacking them, only to be shrugged off. It's all in your mind, the police would say. But for the people of Mirzapur, it was real. For the last few months, there had been sightings of strange balls of light that would attack people and leave them with welts on their faces. It started when people who slept outside in the region to escape the heat would wake up with mysterious scratches and red marks on their faces. But soon, people started seeing what they thought was the culprit. It was a circular object that floated through the air and emitted beams of green and red light. Some people reported that this object was the size of a hawk, but others swore it was as big as an aircraft. They said it would approach them and scratch their face, earning it the name of Munachwa, or face scratcher. As word spread of the cryptid, residents in the area started panicking. They stopped sleeping outside despite the oppressive heat and made sure that clubs and other weapons in their home were never far from reach. Though there's no official reports of people dying from the strange glowing orb, people swore that it was killing their neighbors. There are, however, reports of deaths from the panic Kumar Barai of Jamalpur had a cardiac stroke just hearing stories about the object. There was the man who was killed by police when the mob formed at the station, and a few days later, another man was shot by police in the town of Barabanki. When the town of Barabanki started to mob at their police station, people were losing sleep, Families would stay up in shifts to make sure the object didn't invade their home while they slept. Some people even patrolled the streets by banging big drums to scare off any invaders. One man woke up in the middle of the night and started beating his own father, mistaking him for the Munochwa. Another accidentally killed his pet dog when he felt something lick his face while he slept. And since the police wouldn't do anything, the community took it upon themselves to figure out what was causing it. At first, they thought maybe it was something electrical attracted to the antennas on their roofs. So they took those down, though to no avail. Some reports even say that terrified villagers were killing other community members they suspected of being a Munochwa. One night, someone saw one traveling near a parked car that had a person sitting in the front seat. This led some people to believe it could have been a drone that someone was operating, though that was never proven. Someone else suggested that it was some sort of strange insect released into India by a foreign adversary. A police officer captured a weird-looking bug that he thought may be the culprit. A three-and-a-half-inch-long winged insect. Police decided that this must be the offender, and K.P. Singh, a superintendent of police, made a statement saying that this kind of bug leaves rashes and superficial wounds on people's faces. The villagers did not believe that for a second. 
Other Wilds theories included extraterrestrials or a robot that glows and was brought into Uttar Pradesh by foreign attackers. It got so desperate that the state government even asked the Indian Institute of Technology to help them solve this mystery. Their explanation? Balls of lightning. They said that the area was extremely dry before monsoon season and the atmosphere was causing a phenomenon where balls of lightning appear out of nowhere. These types of lightning balls were really common in New Zealand, but could be found in different parts of Europe and the US. They travel sideways and quickly, which may account for the appearance of them flying. They dissipate after they hit an object and should disappear once the monsoon season arrives. So, sure, maybe people in the community were being hit in the face with balls of lightning while they slept. Or maybe it was a mysterious insect sent by a foreign country. To this day, those are kind of the best guesses we have. The students didn't actually observe the Munochwa to see if that's what it was. But there is one other theory. And this is based on something that happened in Delhi just a few years earlier. There's the theory that this was a shared delusion, an instance of mass hysteria. And the reason some psychologists believe that is because of the monkey man of Delhi. In mid-2001, people reported seeing a four-foot, monkey-like creature around the streets of Delhi. Reports varied, but from what people said, it sounded terrifying. It had a metal helmet on and metal claws, red glowing eyes, three buttons on its chest, and was covered in thick black hair. Some people said it was much taller. Some people said it wore roller skates, but almost everyone described it as looking like a terrifying monkey. Over 350 people reported seeing this creature in Delhi and around 60 of those sightings resulted in injuries. Two people were said to have fallen off of the tops of buildings when they were running away from the monkey man who they thought was chasing them. Though so many people were saying they saw this creature, police never caught anything. And the whole ordeal is now looked back on as an instance of mass hysteria. Eventually, sightings of the Munochwa stopped. Maybe it was the heavy storms of monsoon season that made them disappear. Or maybe the cultural hysteria died down and people just forgot about them. But it still could have been something else. Maybe it really was bugs sent by a foreign adversary, or crazier yet, aliens. We just may never know. Okay, we're gonna take another quick break. And when we get back, I have one more little treat for you. I'm gonna read you a spooky listener tale sent in from Mumbai. Someone who experienced something unexplainable in India for themselves. Our final tale comes from Amanat in Mumbai. Amanat had a strange and unexplainable sighting in India some years back and wanted to share what she saw. And heads up, parts of this story are a little intense. She writes, 
Hello from Mumbai, India. I found your podcast a few weeks ago and I've been addicted ever since. I wanted to share my story with you. It might not be extremely terrifying, but it quite honestly changed my take on the supernatural and actually led me here. So it's 2017 and I'm volunteering to take a batch of children, I was an alumni of the school, to Delhi and Agra to see the Taj Mahal. We checked into a hostel which had two wings, both connected by a simple yet long corridor. I was assigned a dorm with seven girls who after a long day of sightseeing were exhausted. After completing some chores, I went off to bed in the lower bunker. It was quiet, a little too quiet, and there was ample moonlight. Something woke me up and as I turned, I saw a figure that walked past me. It was a short woman in a long skirt, but she was not human. She had a head of a goat with long horns and hands that looked like sticks. I brushed it off and went back to sleep since I was so tired, but I noticed the time was 3.03 a.m. I had a feeling I saw something supernatural, but I had never been scared of ghosts, so I just let it slide. Fast forward to the next night when a boy from the other wing fell sick and I was called in to attend to him. The corridor had a light green tone on the walls and it was dimly lit and very, very quiet. As I walked to the other side of the corridor, I glanced around the paintings and the photos hung on either side of the walls. And there she was, the goat lady. A massive chill ran down my spine and I had goosebumps. I panicked and broke out into a sweat. I didn't sleep at all that night or any other night for the following two weeks to come. I would wait until it was past 4 a.m. and then get a few hours in. I can still recall so vividly how she looked. She was transparent-ish, but her features were stark. On the same trip, a few days after this incident, we visited a mosque that had a stepwell notoriously famous for black magic and exorcisms. While we only wanted to show the children the beautiful mosque, I happened to witness a live exorcism that was rather traumatic and extremely scary. A presumably possessed woman lay tied to the ground with ropes while her family sat in front of her chanting prayers and performing rituals. The exorcist, or Pierre Baba as Muslims call it, started banging her head with a stone until blood would drip on the ground. She was screeching and changing voices, trying to break free and in complete distress. The entire scene lasted about 30 seconds before I could comprehend what was happening and bolted in the opposite direction. But that scene stayed with me. For weeks after the trip, I would be mortified by everything supernatural. I would start crying in fear of my house getting haunted. I couldn't see horror shows or movies anymore. I would change the topic if it was ever brought up. And for two years, I was extremely scared of everything related to spirits and ghosts. The anxiety was crippling. But then something snapped in me. 
I had a master's in psychology and I wanted to use some techniques to help myself since it was affecting me mentally. I chose systematic desensitization as it felt most fitting. So I'm here now, ironically finding comfort in your podcast among other spooky shows and movies. It's helping me understand the other world better and embrace it. I'm not a great writer and I don't know if this would be enough to share on your podcast, but thank you so much for taking the time to read it and allowing me to share. This is the first time I've actually put all of this into words. Amanet, I think you're a great writer and I'm glad the podcast has acted like a type of exposure therapy for you. For as scary as the goat-headed monster was, I cannot imagine experiencing someone going through an exorcism like that. But unfortunately, that still practiced in some parts of the world. But the blend of horror, both of our world and another, with hope, just felt really symbolic of this episode as a whole. Amanat ended up writing a follow-up email to me explaining that this experience made her feel more empathy towards people and made her more receptive to challenges in her life. So even though the experience was terrifying, she was able to find a little good in it. And I think that's really beautiful. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Heart Starts Pounding and maybe learned something a little terrifying about India. I will say, though the research was, yes, terrifying, it also really illuminated for me how beautiful the landscape of India is. The beautiful waterfalls of Mirzapur, the enchanted waters in Dehradun, the hills of Masuri, and there's nothing I love more than something beautiful with a dark history. This has been Heart Starts Pounding, written and produced by me, Kaylin Moore. Sound design and mix by Peachtree Sound. Special thanks to Travis Dunlap, Grayson Jernigan, the team at WME, and Ben Jaffe. Special thanks to our new patrons. You will be thanked by name in our monthly newsletter. Have a heart-pounding story or a case request? Check out heartstartspounding.com. Until next time, stay curious. Ooh. ooh.